Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and happy Friday. We are back with an episode on science in the Bible, and this episode we will be looking at medicine. Since we're talking about science, I'm going to take another opportunity to plug our marine biology trip. The marine biology trip will be going out next April. That's April of 2022, and we are currently accepting applications. If you'd like to find out more information on how you can join the trip, who is it for, what's it like, you can check that out at evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology, or you can click the events tab on our website and find it that way. And without further ado, we'll get back to our normal programming here. This broadcast is made possible by listeners just like you. If you'd like to donate and support this broadcast, you can do so at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael Lane in Science in the Bible, Medicine. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining us today as we're continuing our series on science in the Bible, where you're going to see, as we've been learning all along, the science is not science is not in conflict with the Bible. They actually go together. And as some scientists like Louis Pasteur said, actually science should point us towards God because that's, that's the way it is. God's word is accurate. It's written by a holy God who is absolutely perfect. So if God is holy, he's perfect. What science he gave us is going to be accurate what's in the Bible. Now, as I've said in practically every lesson, this is not a science textbook. It is not. It's not designed for that at all. But there are little tidbits of science that you find in here. And this was written thousands of years ago, and the thing is, it is still accurate today. Unlike a science textbook that has to constantly be re-edited like, all the time because there's so many errors that keep popping up as we make new discoveries, the Bible has stood strong through all this. Those science disagreed with it many times. They usually come back. Finally, it takes some time for them. They'll come back and they'll see that what the Bible was saying was correct all along. So in this lesson, what we're doing today is medicine and the Bible. Medicine and the Bible. Now, the Bible actually has a tremendous amount of information about medicine. Whoa, there's so much in here. So this is going to be a little bit longer of a lesson, but um, actually we're going to divide this up into some other sections too as we close out this series. But to start with, let's get into this, um, this wonderful thing called medicine in the Bible. Let's take a look at what God's Word has to say about medicine. So with that, let's begin. Let's take you back a little bit in time. The time was 1348. The place? Paris, France. What was on the news that day? The news for the day was that there was a plague that was going on, had been going on for a while now, and the plague had killed 800 people just the day before. Countless were ill all through the city. Families are being huddled in their houses. They're afraid to go out, go to work, go outside at all. In some of the back rooms of the houses, people are dying. Some members of the family just re-enter the house after dumping the latest victim, the latest dead family member outside the front door. Out the window, maybe you can see a person walking with a mask made of flowers stuck up in their face. You see, the Hundred Years' War was in its infancy when this plague, called the Black Death, when it hit the city. Paris, at this time, was the most populated city in Western Europe, with a population estimated to be over 200,000 people. 
that's not too big compared to some cities today, but in the, um, back in the 1300s, that's huge. But the city walls had not been expanded um, from for over 100 years. And more people kept coming in and living and people were reproducing. This meant that the entire population was huge and crammed into a very, very tiny, small space. There's no sewer systems. There's no sanitation systems to remove the garbage. No garbage trucks or anything. Feces were often just poured out into the street. Food waste were just dumped out in the streets. There was litter. There was filth everywhere. This alone was caused for a population explosion of rats in the streets and living in the homes too. People were dying so quickly. And there was no means available for them to even be removed and taken to the cemeteries. The cemeteries were overflowing. There were bodies just piled up everywhere. Mass graves started being dug all around the city wherever there was space, and they were just dumping bodies in there because there was no other place to put them. The plague actually hit in two stages. First was the bubonic plague, which most people are familiar with that one. Uh, the bubonic plague was making the people sick. Many died directly from this, this plague, this disease, this bacterial disease. But a second stage, most people don't realize, was also running rampant all over Europe with the plague, and it's called uh, the pneumonic plague. What that happened, or the way this happens, is the bacteria from the bubonic plague enters into the lungs. Now, when it gets into the lungs, this causes people to cough, making it an airborne disease inside their homes where actually the people are living. It has been noted that people who were perfectly healthy the night before they went to bed, by morning would be dead. People began to make excuses. What's causing the Black Death? Some said it was done by the Jews. It's all because of the Jews, because they murdered Jesus. Hmm? This reason alone is so sad because it, caused, it, was, it gave cause for over thousands of Jews to be murdered throughout all of Europe. Others said it was a curse on God because man had sinned. And it was God's curse just because of, of the sinful man that we had become. This resulted in hundreds of people taking whips and chains and walking around the city, striking and beating themselves on the back. They were called flagellants due to the flagrum, which is the name of a, a type of whip that they carried. And they would walk around beating themselves, uh, putting anguish and, and torment upon themselves, trying to appease God and his anger. So what was the scientific community saying through all this? Well, the general thought was the plague was being um, caused by, believe it or not, an astronomical alignment of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And also, there had been a comet that had come right at the beginning of it. So they were saying it was something from astronomy that was causing it. Because there was no microscopes, no modern lab equipment to, to study with, uh, imaginations were just running wild on what was causing it. But eventually, the plague stopped. Hmm, how did that happen? Well, much of this was due to some monks in different areas who went to the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, for help. They read about quarantining ill people instead of just leaving them in the same room and in the same house or even sleeping in the same bed with somebody who was healthy. So this passage, one of the passages that they took to help them find a way of starting a quarantine actually came from the Bible, from one of the books of Moses, the Torah, and it was written around 1450 B.C. 1450 B.C. 
I mean, that's a long time ago. And it reads, this is Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46. It says this, talking about ill people, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. The monks taking this verse right there started applying it in places and they started to see the plague and the illnesses starting to decrease. Isn't this interesting that this passage is used in modern medicine today? Who today on this planet is not familiar with the word quarantine? We use this all the time now. Uh, we commonly quarantine people who are contagious. And the thing is, this has been in the Bible since 1450 BC. It was ignored for centuries. And the thing is, it's absolutely correct. The Bible was correct at this. It amazes me how medical doctors, and it amazes many medical doctors that I know of and other scientists, how accurate the Bible had is, has on information on how to deal with germs, how to deal with bacteria, how to deal with viruses. Because those things weren't even known about in 1450 BC. The code that we're talking about and we're studying here is the Mosaic Health Code. And it is a remarkable code written by Moses in um, 1450 BC. And the thing is, it is so accurate even to this day. How did they know about this? Well, they got it from God. Moses didn't write this. In fact, the Mosaic Health Code was the actual first, as far as I'm aware in studying history, it's the first written health code in history, human history. It dates back into, like I say, 1400s uh, BC, and it still runs perfect in promoting good health and preventing illnesses today. Even today, like I say, it baffles the minds of scientists. How could such a perfect code dealing with bacteria and viruses, how could this thing have, have been designed and everything and be written so long ago and it still is perfect today? So what we're going to do is we're going to examine the health principle, the way that we're going to do this lesson. I'm going to give you a health principle that's taken right out of the Mosaic Health Code. Then what we're going to do is I'm going to give you the passage. I'll give you the title first, then I'll give you the passage uh, or passages, and then we will explain what that passage is saying about the bacteria and viruses or whatever, the fungal, the allergies, the spores. Yes, all this stuff is in there. So we'll do it that way. So we'll start off with, since we're talking about quarantines, let's go with quarantines. So the first principle, quarantines. And we already read one verse, but here's another passage from the Mosaic Health Code. It's Numbers chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Now, I'm reading these out of the English Standard Version because that's a word-for-word -word translation, um, and so that's the, the translation I'm using here. Command the people of Israel that they put out of camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put, uh, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, and that they may not defile their camp uh, in the midst of which I dwell. So right there, if you're ill, you're getting put outside the camp. You're being isolated. You're being quarantined. And of course, we saw Leviticus 13, 46, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So we have two verses here, two passages that specifically are saying someone's sick. You don't keep them in with the healthy. You get them isolated. And that's what this is. Now, many translations on this passage here, because they use um, the word leprosy. So many translations uh, specifically mention that this pertains directly to leprosy. 
leprosy alone. Well, that is not true. Uh, in ancient times, leprosy was a generic term for disease, skin disease. So it included so many different things. It, it, it was, you uh, were called a leper and you might not have had Hansen's disease, which is the modern term for leprosy today. That's the specific disease we commonly call leprosy. But in ancient times, leprosy could be anything such as herpes. It could be shingles, uh, smallpox, measles, uh, chickenpox, bubonic plague, tu uh, tuberculosis, influenza, anything like this in ancient times would have been called leprosy. So don't let that, that term there just think that or try and tell you that it's only dealing with leprosy. It's not. For much of history, ill people were not quarantined. You go back and you study medical history, you'll see people seldom were quarantined. Uh, when, they, when they became sick, they lived with their family units and they lived in their society. And they had constant contact with the person. Matter of fact, many times they slept in the same beds. The knowledge of bacteria and viruses was totally unknown. But this practice of quarantining does help prevent the spread of many, many communicable diseases. Modern science now knows that this is a very, very useful method for treating illnesses. Now, that's quarantine. Let's go to a second principle. Personal hygiene. <laughs> this is a fun one. Personal hygiene. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 7, we read, And whoever touches the body of one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Okay, that's a fascinating passage right there. But let's go to another one. Here's Leviticus 15, 13. Just go down a little bit. And when the one with a discharge is... Uh, is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall be counted for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. You notice this is all talking about taking a bath. Taking a bath is very great. It's a great thing to do. It's great for yourself. It's great for your neighbors. It really is. Um, maybe they won't tell you that, but they appreciate it. Being a teacher in school for many years and then teaching elementary school for a while, some of those kids, I could tell, never took a bath all week long. By Friday, uh, oh my gosh, I needed a gas mask sometimes. People just don't, a lot of times, do not like to take baths, particularly kids and stuff. But um, laying around ill, as this is talking about, when you're ill and stuff like this or whatever, laying around ill and never changing your clothes, um, even when you get better, that's not good hygiene. Just good hygiene is to wash, is to bathe yourself. Now, granted, true, I don't disagree with this at all. In Western society, um, people take too many baths. I personally know a couple of people that take two baths a day. They take one in the morning, they take one in the night every single day of their life. They're doing this. Um, that's maybe a little bit too extreme. Bathing is still helpful, though, for making one clean. And why? Because it washes off and kills the pathogens. Soap kills the pathogens, um, things that are disease-causing, and so it makes one also feel better. I can attest to this personally. I've been in the hospital many times with very, uh, in some cases, very serious illnesses for prolonged stays in the hospital, and there was nothing like when they finally said, hey, you can get up and take a bath and change your clothes. Oh my gosh, I'd, I'd feel so much better. Just getting some nice, clean, personal hygiene taken care of here. Oh my gosh, it makes you feel so much better. But during ancient days, and even medieval times. And in fact, if you really want to get into this, even up to just recently, people often didn't bathe. They didn't change their clothes very often. 
now, this really uh, made a boom and prospered the perfume industry because uh, <laughs> they tried to cover up the smells. I won't say who, but I roomed with a guy at one time who only took baths on Saturday night. That was it. He just took a bath on Saturday night. This is obviously before I was married. I'm not talking about my wife. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble there. No, it wasn't her. But I roomed with a guy. He only took a bath um, on Saturday nights. And what he did, he bought cheap cologne. And he would just get up every single morning and just pour this cheap cologne all over his body, rubbing it all over his body. Well, the first day it wasn't so bad on a Sunday. Um, Monday, Tuesday, it starts going on. Oh my gosh, by Thursday and Friday, the body sweat, the odors and everything mixed with that smell of the cologne. I can't stand the, the smell of this cologne that he used all the time to this day. It just makes me want to barf. But the perfume industry was really helped by this kind of thing. You see, before Louis Pasteur, in the latter part of the 1800s, developed what we call the germ theory that states that germs cause illnesses, the mortality rate in hospitals was very high, much higher than it is today. For instance, let me give you one example of this. This, this, this is a famous story. It's very sad, but this is amazing. This is all true. This took place in the mid-1800s in Vienna. In Vienna, in the hospital in Vienna, one out of every six babies that were being born died of a disease that they called childbirth fever. One out of every six births. That's an appalling rate. And it troubled doctors, especially this one Jewish doctor whose name was Ignaz Schemmelweis. Schemmelweis studied this carefully. Why did all these kids, why are all these infants dying right after birth? They seem to be perfectly healthy at the birth, but then they die afterwards. What's going on? So he studied the situation, and he concluded that the disease, this what they called childbirth fever, was caused by the doctors themselves. You see, back then, hand-washing, doctors did not consider hand-washing important. They didn't do this. A doctor would literally be doing an autopsy in, in one room, one moment, cutting up a body that's full of pus and all sorts of pathogens and things with his hands. He's not wearing gloves. His hands are being used like this. Um, or maybe he's got someone who's sick and he's bleeding out some pus or, and draining some pus out of a wound or something like this. And very quickly, a nurse comes in and says, oh, a lady just came in. You got to deliver uh, this baby. So right away, he would just get up and go over, not washing his hands. I know this is gross. They didn't wash their hands. And they would go over and they would deliver the baby. Schemmelweis decided that all this gunk is what was causing this illness. So he decided to apply the Jewish ritual of hand washing as required in the Torah, in the Bible, to the hospital staff. Now, I'll tell you, he met major resistance. Many doctors were very upset about this inconvenience of having to wash their hands with soap and water and antiseptics. They didn't want to do it, but they were all ordered to do it and they started doing it. And by washing the hands, what happened was this. They saw a dramatic drop in infant deaths to, are you ready, less than 1% during the next year. Down to only 1% of infants dying. Now, you would think, Schemmelweis, would have been praised for this discovery. Uh, some speculate that if the Nobel Prize for Medicine had been existing at that time, he would have been probably the, the recipient of the Nobel Prize for Medicine. You'd think all that would happen, but that's unfortunately not what happened. 
what happened was his colleagues were very jealous of him, very angry at him for, for making them now all having to wash their hands, the inconvenience, as they kept calling it, that they thought that this hand-washing thing was ridiculous. So what they did, they plotted his abduction and they put him into, they got him to go into an insane asylum under a false pretense, and there he was kept and he was beaten to death. What a reward for being correct. Now, laws on washing and personal hygiene, as recorded in the Bible, do prevent communicable diseases. The thing is, they weren't used in medicine. That all took place in the mid-1800s. That's just like 150 years ago. Um, but finally, doctors, as we get to the latter 1800s, after the work of Louis Pasteur and others, um, we start seeing that washing is very important. And even into the 1900s, this still took some time for some doctors to, to see the importance of personal hygiene. So it's taken a long time for this one to, to, to be accepted and, and for some doctors to even promote it. But today, now, as you know, um, hand washing um, is so common with this COVID uh, panic that's gone all over the world. Uh, people wash their hands all the time, and that's what it is. I used to teach microbiology and working with bacteria and stuff often. And I've had students that used to count how many times I would wash my hands per day um, in my lab. Because I was, I, I, I guess I was teaching them without even realizing it. But I remember one time a person came up to me and they said just in the short time that they had spent with me, um, it was a lab assistant who had been in there for more than one period. They said, I counted 37 times today. You went over to the sink and washed your hands with antiseptics. So yeah, well, maybe I'm a germaphobe. I don't know. But anyway, that has to do with personal hygiene. It is important and your friends will thank you for it. Let's go to the next principle. Let's go to sterilization. Sterilization, to sterilize an object. This is discussed in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verse 23. And it reads, anything that can stand fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. I remember as a student in microbiology in college, and we would uh, flame things, pass it through flame to sterilize it. And I remember reading this passage in the Bible, and I was like, holy cow, this is, this is right out of the Bible. This is amazing. You see, I am, as I said, I'm a former teacher of microbiology. I have worked in, in labs culturing bacteria, sometimes very deadly bacteria. I have worked with stuff like this. Um, a major tool in working with these is a little inoculating loop. Um, I don't have one with me right now. But it's just a small little, um, ours were metal, um, usually made out of nickel, and it had a little circle at the end that you could pick up colonies, like a droplet of water, droplet of culture and stuff. But to sterilize it, because sitting on the table, it's got bacteria on it, so you would pass it through flame till it would glow red. When it glows red, we know that it's, it's totally sterile. And so passing loops through the flame, now it's sterile. You could dip it into and pick up a culture of bacteria and, and do it. it, it it's, by flaming it, you sterilize it. And so now it's able to be used for transfer. Scientists frequently use flame to sterilize instruments. We do it many times. Um, and working as a, as a scientist and as a uh, science teacher, many times we're passing things through, um, through flame to sterilize them. Uh, many procedures we do this. And it's right, thing is, it's right out of the Bible. I mean, even you probably have done it yourself. You ever had a splinter in your hand? You're going to take a, maybe a needle or a pin to help remove it? How many of you, in doing that, take it to the stove and pass it through the flame first? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you've had something a little bit more serious and you had to use like a pocket knife. And you're going to have to do a little minor surgery on your hand or something with a pocket knife. Do you not pass it through a flame first? And 
that sterilizes it. So that's why this is so important. And the thing is, when you're doing that, you're going back actually to something that was written 1450 BC. It's just amazing. See, before passing an instrument through flame, just sitting on a table, it can be covered by millions or even billions of bacteria. And a lot of times, you just can't wipe these things off. You just can't take something and try and wipe it off and think you're going to get all the bacteria off here because bacteria, many species of bacteria, produce a capsule around them, a gelatinous capsule that makes them stick and adhere. And so they don't come off very easily. Um, soap will help and, and things like that and alcohol and things. But flame works really good because flame, very few things are going to live through a really hot flame like that. So flames work really well. And then it is sterile. So that's why you have to pass it through flame. And you, the rule is you do it until, if it's metal, till it glows red. Then you know that everything's been burned to death on there. You see, during wars, most soldiers in wars do not die in battle directly. Oh, no. No. Most are killed by infections that develop from the wounds. I remember in a, a course on American Civil War that I took, um, experts estimated that two-thirds of deaths in the Civil War were not caused by war rooms. Two-thirds of the deaths were caused by infections. Yes, infections. Getting a wound or something, then he got infected. Or getting a cut, and he got infected. Um, until Louis Pasteur comes up and develops this, the germ theory, people didn't realize why so many simple medical procedures resulted in infections and death. They didn't catch it. No one understood this because they didn't understand what germs were, what was causing the disease. Going to the dentist back then, you put your life in jeopardy because they would not sterilize their instruments. That sounds gross, doesn't it? But that's what they did. And you would come in and the patient who just got out having his tooth yanked out or had an abscess, now they're going to use the same instrument on you. Or do you go to a barber shop for a shave? They never sterilize the razor. And so if you got cut again, there might be blood from the patient before, or the, I shouldn't say patient, the customer before, and then he's got his bacteria, his, his germs are on that, and you get cut or shaved or nicked or something, you get it too. It was really dangerous to go to just go get a shave at a barber shop because people didn't sterilize. They didn't understand about it. What Moses had written had never caught on with science. Science just never caught on to these things. Isn't that amazing that God instructed Moses 3,400 years ago to do this precise thing? Moses had no idea about germs. He never took microbiology. He didn't know what bacteriums are. He didn't know what a virus was and, and things like this. He had no idea about how dangerous it was, but God knew. God knew. And he wrote this in his book. This is how you sterilize. Modern laboratory technique. No one ever knew before. God knew it, and we use it today, and it helps prevent infections. Wow, how cool is that? Let's go to sanitation. <laughs> uh, here's another one of these fun topics. People usually don't like talking about feces and stuff like this, but, um, well, I mean, if you really want to have some fun sometimes, really, you really want to have some fun, um, take a Baby Ruth candy bar, go to a swimming pool where there's a bunch of kids, and nonchalantly and without anybody knowing, just drop the Baby Ruth candy bar in the swimming pool. Um, it will freak out people, particularly the parents all around. When they see the Baby Ruth candy bar sitting there, they're going to assume it's something else. No, I never did that. <laughs> anyway, let's go on to sanitation. Uh, what does the Bible say about sanitation? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 and 13, God wrote this, or had Moses write this down. You shall have a place outside of the camp, and you shall go out 
to it and you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and then turn back and cover up your excrement. Isn't that a great Bible passage? How many sermons have you ever heard on with this verse from the pulpit on a Sunday morning? <laughs> it's, it's an important verse. It's fantastic. I mean, this is a passage we all should know. Um, it's talking about feces. Since the beginning of time, people have gone to the bathroom. I mean, we do. Feces is not a nice topic to discuss. You might have turned off the tape right now. But uh, anyway, I, I hope we don't put on any uh, images showing some things like this. But no, we're not going to do that. But the... <laughs> The failure to dispose of feces has resulted, are you ready, in millions of deaths over time. Probably even closer to billions. Even today, in some countries, this is still an issue. Diseases like cholera, typhoid, dysentery, polio, diarrhea, and, and some others have killed and continue to kill many people in places with poor sanitation. After some country has a major earthquake, uh, like a less developed country, cholera often sets in. Why? Because people are still living and they're going to the bathroom. And sanitation has just gone out the window, sometimes literally. Yet 3,400 years ago, a large group of Hebrews went on the, the longest camping trip in history. Um, it lasted 40 years in the wilderness. God was leading them around, and there were no rest areas to go to the bathroom. It wasn't like Moses saying, well, there's a rest area coming up here you know, on the side, uh, and about three more miles, we'll stop there and camp there. No, it wasn't like that. They're out in the wilderness, and God was leading them. And so as God is leading them, he had to provide for them a way of modern sanitation because you're going to have to deal with the feces. I mean, this is a large group of people. There's going to be a lot of feces there. And so you're going to have to deal with it. So God comes up with this method that we just saw. You dig a hole in the ground and you bury your feces outside a camp. Do you know that the Boy Scouts of America still teach this exact same concept, the same principle that you find in the Bible to this day? It's still in there and they still teach it. That what they do is they go outside and they are taught when they're out camping, you dig a hole at least eight inches deep and you sit down and go to the bathroom basically in that hole and then what you do is you cover it back up you, you fill it back in with the dirt above that and you have to be at least according to the boy scout manual you got to be at least 200 feet outside of the camp for this uh, so it's a safe distance um, if it rains or something the water's not going to generally come back into the camp and contaminate everybody um, Let's talk about another principle, sort of similar in the same way, garbage disposal. Oh, this is a biggie too, garbage disposal. In Leviticus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, God gives us, um, as he's talking about sacrifices and stuff, he's giving us the idea, the principle of disposing of garbage properly. And this is what it reads. The skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, and all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it on a fire made of wood on the ash heap it shall be burned up now this is a very important passage because it's talking about all sorts of garbage this is leftover garbage we're not talking about feces of human feces here we're just talking about trash and taking food trash food waste things like this or any other type of garbage it would be a problem if it stays in the camp so taking care of feces is one thing taking care of trash and garbage is another there are many places in the U.S. and the world today that still need to learn this lesson. 
and how to stop this type of pollution. I mean, pick on, uh, you just pick up the news today, uh, newspaper, or you read the news or watch it on television. How many times do they still talk about pollution? It's all over the place. We do not dispose of garbage still very well today. Uh, yet 3,400 years ago, God explained to the Hebrew nation on your camping trip, this is how, and when you live in Israel, when you get to the Canaan, the promised land, this is how you're gonna do things. This is how you take care of garbage. You're gonna burn this stuff. And that's what they were supposed to do. It's taken so long, people still don't understand it. To leave trash, to leave food waste around, just gives vermin free food, and it, it rings the dinner bell for all of them to come. If there's free food sitting out in the street or whatever, this is what Paris's problem, part of its problem was. They were throwing waste just out in the street. Well, the, the rats were just, hey, let's go over here and have a meal. I mean, they get together, have conventions and stuff. So with these pests and scavengers, they bring disease. Viral and bacterial diseases can quickly overpower large populations of people. History shows it. The Black Death is a classic example of it. Ancient Rome went through plagues like this. And almost every other major city, from ancient times to even to today. And what do we see as a result of this? Because we don't do proper trash disposal, we see diseases such as the Norwalk virus, hepatitis, gastroenteritis, cholera, typhoid, dysentery, and many more. I can't even, we'd be standing here for a long time reading how many other diseases can can come and have an outbreak because of this. Even in the United States, when garbage is not disposed of, we run into problems like this. But the Bible has a solution. The Bible is not some antiquated book that is not uh, important and its science is wrong. No, the Bible is what we're seeing is actually very accurate on all this and how you take care of it. It has a solution for it. And it was given at a time, which amazes me, it was given at a time when no one had any knowledge of what a virus was, what a bacteria was, yet it, it showed how to take care of this. How many lives could have been saved if we had simply followed God's plan? Wow, that sounds like a sermon right there. Let's go to another one people often don't think about that's in the Bible and this code. Let's talk about fungal diseases and spore-borne allergies. And you might be sitting here like, what? The Bible talks about spore-borne allergies? Fungal disease? Yes, it does. Now, to make this passage I'm going to show you, because yes, we can go and give you the principle, then we're going to do the, pa uh, the passages. To do this, and some of these are a little lengthy, um, I want to make sure that you understand it. So I'm going to change translations to go to the God's Word translation. God's Word translation is a translation that um, it's a sort of like a combination between a word-for-word um, -word translation and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Sort of puts it in there. But the translators in making this translation tried to make it succinct, uh, succinct and trying to keep it as simple to understand. Uh, trying to stay close to, to exactly what God is saying, but trying to put it in words that people will understand very easily and get the meaning of. So let's use the God's Word translation for this passage here, and it'll make it a little clearer. The English Standard Version's a little a little harder to understand on this one, the readability on it. So Leviticus chapter 13, it's going to be verses 47 through 59. is going to be our first part here we're going to read. And it reads this. Now, about clothing. If there is a green or a red area on a piece of clothing that is woven or knitted from linen or wood or on any leather article, it's mildew. It must be shown to the priest. The priest will examine it. And the priest 
we'll examine the mildew and we'll put the clothing in a separate place for seven days. On the seventh day, he will examine the area again. If the spot is spreading, it's unclean. He must burn the piece of clothing or the leather article because the mildew is growing. But if the priest sees that the area has not spread, he must order the area to be washed and put the clothing in a separate place for seven more days. The priest will examine the area again after it is washed. If it doesn't look any different and the mildew has not spread, it is still unclean. It must be burned. Whether the area is on the outside or on the inside. If the priest sees that the area is pale after washing, he will tear it out of the clothing or the leather. However, if it shows up again, you must burn the clothing or the leather article. But if the area disappears from the woven or the knitted clothing or any other leather article, when it is washed, wash it again and it will be clean. And these are the instructions for deciding whether mildew in clothing that is woven or knitted from linen or wood or any other letter article is clean or unclean. So that's one passage talking about mildew specifically and the spread of mildew. But here's another one. In Leviticus chapter 14, verses 34 through 47, uh, we're going to read some more about this. When you come into Canaan that I'm going to give you, mildew may appear in a house. The owner of that house must come and tell the priest that there is something that looks like mildew in the house. Before the priest examines the house, he will order everything taken out of it so that nothing in the house will become unclean. Then the priest will go inside to examine the house. He will examine the mildew area on the walls. If it's green and red in sunken areas that are deeper than the rest of the wall, the priest will go out of the out to the door of the house and close up the house for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will go back and examine it again. If the mildew in the walls of the house has spread, the priest must order that the stones that have the mildew to be torn out and thrown outside the city in an unclean place. He must have the entire inside of the house scraped. The plaster dust scraped off the walls, must be dumped in an unclean place outside the city. The stones must be replaced, and the house must be plastered again. If the mildew develops again in the house, after all of this, the priest will examine it one more time. If it is a spreading type of mildew, the house is unclean. The house Stones, wood, and all the plaster must be torn down, taken to an unclean place outside the city. Whoever goes into the house any time it is closed up will be unclean until evening. Whoever sleeps or eats in the house must wash their clothes. Now this is an amazing passage because we're talking about mildew, which is a fungal uh, organism, and it's talking about spores and just going inside the house, not coming in contact, the spores. It, this is all being mentioned here. You see, for centuries, people have become ill due to spores from molds and mildew. It happens, even today. Um, I remember in, when I was teaching microbiology, having articles in some of my books that I talk, taught from about how um, certain 
um, places in your house, like your bathroom in particular, often have a lot of mildew in them. The little brown or greenish brown or blackish crud that you see in some of the, uh, the, the uh, corners and nooks and crannies of your bathroom, that's mildew. And they produce spores. And most people don't even think about this, but they produce spores into the air. I mean, it spreads, it grows. And the thing is, as you go into the bathroom, you inhale these things and they get into your lungs and you start to have a reaction. Let me read you something about this from the Mayo Clinic website specifically on this, how it parallels what the Bible's saying. Get this, a mold allergy can cause coughing, itchy eyes, and other symptoms that make you miserable. In some people, a mold allergy is linked to asthma and exposure, causes restrict restricted breathing, and other airway symptoms. Like any allergy, mold allergy symptoms are triggered by an oversensitive immune system response. When you inhale tiny airborne mold spores, your body recognizes them as foreign invaders and develops allergy-causing antibodies to fight them. Exposure to mold spores can cause a reaction right away or the reaction can be delayed. That's a quote right from the Mayo Clinic website, and that's what the Bible is talking about here. Going into the house, not even touching it, just the spores, just breathing the air in there. Yet the Hebrew nation, being instructed by God 3,400 years ago on how to deal with microscopic spores, when they grow in your home or in other buildings and stuff like this, this is remarkably accurate. God's law also includes ways to test cloth and other materials for contamination. These contaminations would, would not be discovered until Louis Pasteur in the latter 1800s, who, by the way, if you recall from other lessons, is a Bible-believing Christian guy who's a scientist. Can't help but under, to wonder if how much stuff, how much information Louis Pasteur got out of the Bible himself. I'll tell you, I even worked, um, when I was working in microbiology, there was a family that contacted me because they had bought, a, they had built a brand new home, had a construction uh, contractor come in and build, stick build a new home for them. And within a year, there was green mold growing all over inside the rooms, on the ceilings, on the walls, etc. They called me up and asked me, well, they talked to the contractor. Contractor says it's nothing that he did wrong. So they contacted me, can you help uh, tell me what this is? I took samples, took it back to the lab. I identified what the spores were, what they were, um, what the things were. And I even said, well, it's really strong in here. So I had a device that I could do a spore count in just the air. So we set this up and we took air samples. And then I cultured the air samples. and. I recorded all of this, I took photographs of all of this, and they ended up having to go to court against the contractor um, because the contractor built the house in, in such a way that there was no air exchange whatsoever and it was just building up mildew and mold inside the house. And the family who invited me over took them to court um, and my testimony and stuff, my evidence was entered in and they, um, they won their case. The contractor had to pay them totally for the house and the house had to be destroyed because it was just, I mean, it was everywhere by this time. And they, you know, interesting thing happens like this, but this is like right out of the Bible. This is what it's talking about. Let's talk about dermatology. Dermatology. You might be thinking, what, why dermatology in the Bible? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, this is interesting. You see in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, and we're back to the English Standard Version now. It says, or you can read, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. 
Now, for a number of years, <laughs> or a number of years ago, I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story dealing with this. A number of years ago, a science teacher in Florida did an experiment. And what he was going to do, he was teaching middle school. He was going to do an experiment where he was going to let his students with microscopes look at their own blood under the microscope. After explaining what he was going to do, he took a cotton ball, just an ordinary cotton ball, and he took a dissecting needle using some alcohol, <laughs> just rubbing alcohol. He saturated a cotton ball with alcohol. Then what he did is he took the needle and wiped it with the, the cotton ball saturated with the alcohol. Then with a big needle like this, he went around and he poked a student, his first student. He poked a student. Then what he did right after poking, he took the, he still had the cotton ball in his hand. He wiped it again, went to another student, poked it, wiped it again, went to another student, poked it, wiped it again. He did this for all 30 something kids in his class. Well, <laughs> yeah, they got to see their blood, but they also got something else. By wiping this off, um, just with a cotton swab, there was a problem. Uh, what ended up happening in just days or weeks, I don't remember exactly how long, not, not long period of time afterwards, every single student in his class came down ill and they found out it was hepatitis. <laughs> what? As they investigated this, uh, the superintendent um, was finally informed that what the experiment was the teacher had done with that class and how he had done this. And it just so happened that the first person he poked had hepatitis. So what he did, he was using his needle, um, not just to poke, but he was transferring the hepatitis um, uh, pathogen to every single one of his students. Just wiping it with the alcohol, with rubbing alcohol, does not sterilize like that. It, it doesn't do it. So every single one of his students came down with hepatitis um, because they're being poked with this needle. Now, since the days of the pharaohs, pharaoh um, and people in Canaan, the Philistines, etc., they were very into, very much into uh, skin cuttings and tattoos. That's been popular ever since. Matter of fact, until the modern motif, tattoos. Um, now have just really sprung into the 21st century. People are getting tattoos all the time. When I was a little kid, hardly anybody had a tattoo unless you came out of prison or were in the military. Hardly ever did you see a person with tattoo. Today, even grandmas get tattoos. I don't understand some of this stuff. But um, people get tattooed all the time or they have cuttings and stuff causing scars in certain patterns. Well, in ancient times, now that's not the way most people do it today, but I will tell you, sometimes, even today, I've had some, I have seen people that have walked around with modern tattoos, modern teenagers and college students and young adults walking around with tattoos in their arms and, and other places. And the thing is, it's, an, it's a cultic symbol. And they have no idea. When I've actually questioned uh, a person about it, I said, I'm just curious, so can I see your symbol? And they let me see it. And I said, I'm curious, why did you pick that? Oh, I thought it looked cool. I recognize it because I studied Canaan religion, um, the mythologies and stuff. And these are all symbols. Uh, a lot of these are symbols that they had on their body and they had no idea that they, that's what they were. You see, back in those days, tattoos were often associated with pagan religion, with idolatry, or references to the dead. Archaeologists tell us that the ancient Canaanites and the Philistines, were the Phil, uh, when Moses was leading the people and Joshua took them into the Promised Land, that the people there were commonly tattooed and had body cuttings. 
Rahab or Rahab, the um, prostitute at Jericho who hid the spies, was probably tattooed like Lydia the tattooed lady. She was probably very, very colorful. Uh, Ruth the Moabitess probably was very colorful also with, with tattoos and things um, because they had these, they, they grew up, it was part of their, their culture. And some of these symbols, like I say though, um, are used in cultures and they've now made it their way into modern America and pop cultures. Now what's happened is, in ancient times, of course, they did sort of like what that Florida teacher did, just poking with needles with inks and stuff on them. And without knowing about sanitation and flaming to sterilize, you get diseases. Two major diseases associated with tattoos, uh, hepatitis and tetanus, um, still happens in this world today. Even in modern times, because in some tattoo places, they still do not use modern aseptic technique to sterilize instruments in between. Um, now, most of the time in the United States, they do, because there's laws in the United States, but you go out to other, other countries that don't have these laws, you still see these kind of diseases popping up. God was telling the Israelites, hey, you know, this, this is not a good thing to do. You know, for one, it's having to do with idolatry, and I am the Lord, you worship me, but also there's diseases that come along with this. Now, the purpose of this, what I'm getting into, I'm not trying to condemn tattooing. Don't get, I'm not saying that. It was forbidden for the ancient Israelites. In the Old Covenant, it is definitely forbidden for Israelites to get tattooed and to have cuttings, definitely. Uh, I don't want to get into the whole thing today on that. That's, that's not the purpose of our study here. But um, that's what it was. And, and the two reasons basically for that was, one, the tattoos were associated with idolatry and pagan religion. Second, it caused bacteria and viruses to enter into the body. You see, our skin is an effective barrier against bacteria, against viruses. God designed us a fascinating system that works beautifully. And our immune system, when it works properly, is an amazing um, flowchart of how everything works to keep us healthy in this filthy world we live in. But when this barrier we call the skin is compromised, germs and viruses, bacteria can easily enter into our bodies and make us ill. God knew about this. And he, it would take a couple of millennium before people, before man, actually discovered why this was happening. But God knew it. So, fascinating thing. Let's talk about another principle. How about physical fitness? Yes, don't I? Well, we won't go there. <laughs> but anyway, physical fitness. It, it is mentioned in the Bible. Actually, in a passage you probably are all very familiar with. It's in Exodus chapter 20, talking about the, the Ten Commandments. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. Uh, to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. God is telling people to take a break. <laughs> now today... Oh my gosh, how many TV shows, how many books, magazines, etc., are all talking about physical fitness and what we eat, and, 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 but to be physically fit, to exercise. Uh, I get this from my wife all the time. Michael, you need to exercise more. And she's absolutely correct. I, I don't doubt that at all. Um, they tell us to do this. Why? For good health. Not to just break out into a sweat, but to, to keep good health and get us in good health. We hear about this all the time. We all know we're supposed to exercise. Um, you see, we're not designed by God to sit around on a couch eating french fries or bonbons watching TV shows. We need to move about to be healthy. You need to move to be healthy. Let me read you something I found in the New York Daily News, an article here. Quote, 5.3 million people die each year from being lazy and inactivity. 
it indirectly affects our mental health and increases the risk of diabetes and heart problems. Physical inactivity is the fourth leading risk factor for death in the world, unquote. Wow, I mean, we, we read this. I'm not telling you anything you probably don't already know. Things like physical fitness are important. It helps to relieve stress, stress-related illnesses uh, such as diabetes, heart disease, cardiovascular disease. All these could be decreased in people so easily if we would simply get off our backsides, get up and start moving around and doing things. We were designed to work, to do things, to not, you know, it's a part of the curse of sin, but we are designed to actually still move around and do things. In ancient times, this wasn't so much a problem because everybody was doing manual labor. So they were doing it. But modern technology has really made us lazy. Really lazy. A lot of people today just sit at a computer all day long. They never get out of their chair. I know this so well because it's sort of like me. I, I, have a pro I have to literally get up, force myself to take breaks to get up and move around because I'm writing. I spend most of my time writing. Um, but in this passage that we just read, one could read that we are to work. The Israelites were not to come into Canaan, even though God had them all, all the vineyards and everything were planted and everything, but they weren't just to come in. They were to come in and to tend the sheep. They were to grow and harvest the crops, uh, press the oil, uh, olives for oil, and scores of other activities they were instructed to do. That's, that was going to be their life. God didn't say you're going to come over to Promised Land and just sit on a stone sofa and eat bonbons. No, they were still going to work. They were going to be physically active to keep them healthy. More importantly, God instructed them to take a day off. Don't work all the time. How many of us have that problem? Some of us have problems trying to find a day off. That goes against what God's law is saying too. Rest is important. You have to have rest to, be, to have a healthy body, to have a healthy mind. And today, just pick up news articles or whatever in books, magazines, you'll see this being printed all the time. It's, it's out there everywhere, but we just don't catch it. But the thing is, what, the point I'm making, this all came in the Bible first, 3,400 years ago. Let's talk about sexual morality. Oh, um, Let me just show you a couple of verses here. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of, of things on this, but I just want to show you the Bible does have solutions for a lot of problems. And speaking on sexual moralities, as we're talking about health codes and things, and medicine. In Exodus 20:14, God says, you shall not commit adultery. Boom. That's pretty plain. Leviticus 18:22 says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. Boom. Uh, Leviticus 19:29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. Pretty clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and a bunch of verses after. You can read it on your own. If a man commits adultery, there's a whole list of things. God is condemning all of this sexual immorality. You see, since ancient times, sexually transmitted diseases and other illnesses related to immoral behavior have plagued society. Canaan, the land, the promised land that God gave to the Israelites, was rampant with sexual sin. Now, much of this was the sexual corruption was caused by the religions that they had, the worship of the Baals and Asherah and others, that it was all from that. But many archaeologists and historians believe that this land was also filled with STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, that these people were very infected. Now, God's bringing his holy people into this land where you have all this. So he gives them very, very strict rules. You're going to be pure and holy because I'm 
pure and holy. I'm holy, you're going to be my holy people, is what he's saying. So he gave them laws based on sexual purity so because it's important to not only us, but it's important to God that we stay healthy. And they failed, obviously miserable, in miserable ways, as you read through the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles. They, they did terrible things. Or the book of Judges, how terrible things got. Um, sexual immorality is running rampant in our world today. Living a holy and sexually moral life according to God's law greatly reduces most STDs. Do you know that? It's true. You can find documentation on this everywhere. But man is a morally corrupt creature that constantly is seeking his own pleasure without regard to holiness. Selfishness and lust contribute to uh, so much to people's anguish today. People have guilt in things caused by this. I can't begin to count how many people, from students when I was a teacher, to even as I've worked in ministry, to adults and everything, who have struggled with such anxiety, such mental anguish, or with diseases simply because of being sexually immoral. Right now, I have a, a thought going through my mind of one of my high school students who came up to me after school one day, all upset and in tears. And he, he was a senior, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, um, we're alone in the lab. And he says, I just found out from the lady that I'm dating um, that she just got diagnosed um, with HIV, and I'm afraid I'm going to have AIDS now. Um, and he, he was just, just crushed. And he was sexually immoral. I mean, just put it that way. Uh, I didn't condemn him. I tried to help the guy. You know, you love the sin or you hate the sin. But I have also counseled adults who have experienced married couples that have gone through such terrible anguish in their, in their marriage. And it comes down to one or both of them to their sexual past when they were teenagers of what they did in the past. They can't get over that. And we don't talk about this sometimes enough, that the anguish that happens from all of this. No, today, instead, we point to, oh, um, if it feels good, do it. You know, it's one of the major slogans and, and other slogans like that. That's what we're after. Instead of following God's law, God's way of doing things to live a healthy life, people keep trying to do what? What are we doing today? We're making new medicines constantly. So why? We can continue to live um, as amorally as we want. So we, let's just make a new drug for it to treat it. Well, if we follow God's law, we don't have to do that. You don't have to. We could lessen or even remove many, many diseases if we just follow God's health code. Hmm. And finally, let's talk about nutrition. Now, I'm just barely going to touch on this one because we're coming to the end on this and this has been getting long. But this one, I'm going to show you a couple of passages here. But... Um, we're going to make a whole new lesson on this, but let's, let's start off with this. What does God's Word say about nutrition? What does the science in the Bible say about nutrition? In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17, it reads, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Here's another one. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 23 through 26. Speak to the people of Israel, saying that you shall eat no fat, of an ox, or a sheep, or a goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of the animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from, the tribe, or from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, 
whether of fowl or of animal, in, in any of your dwelling places, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And just to give you one here, the entire chapter of Leviticus 11. I'm telling you, there's so much information here. There's no time that we have to go through this. But there are many, let me just say this, there are so many food principles set forth in the Torah, in the Mosaic Health Code, that people have written literally books just on this. Um, one book that I have, um, I have read that is fascinating on this is Moses, the first author of health, uh, written by a doctor. And there's other ones that are out there. You can, they're, they're flooding the market. You can find books going on the Mosaic Health Code and the nutrition that God sets forth. You know, the Jews are a peculiar people, and, they, and that's what it says in Peter. And the thing is, their diets are different. You go to a Jewish area of a city, the restaurants offer a different diet than what you see at a common McDonald's. Um, so there's many books, there's many magazines, many articles and things, and even TV shows on this and, and documentaries and things showing and proving that following the Mosaic food law, the, the code here given by God, leads to a more healthy life and a longer life expectancy. Did you know that in some states in the United States, life insurance companies gives discounts to Jewish families, Orthodox Jewish families that follow the Jewish health code? They do. Why? Because studies have shown over the years that they are actually healthier and they live longer because of their diet. But like I say, this is such a large topic. Oh my gosh, there's so much we could go in on that we're going to make a whole another lesson just on this. We're going to have a, a lesson, special lesson. The next one will be just on nutrition um, because there's, there's so much I could tell you. And even in this, I'm not going to be able uh, to give you a whole lot of information, but we'll take a look at certain passages in the Bible and show you how accurate the Bible is and why certain things, like why were lobster and shrimp forbidden to eat back then? There's reasons for this um, and the blood and stuff. I remember when I studied cooking, classes we sometimes use blood and I studied French cuisine and we use blood as a thickener for sauces at times so I mean why why is this bad and stuff we'll get into the next that into our next lesson but I hope you've enjoyed this one as we've gone through and seen um, the medicine aspects of the Bible and oh my gosh there are so many more pieces that we could do we just don't have time there's books on it you can buy, you can download and stuff. Uh, some are written by Jewish doctors and things, uh, following the Mosaic Health Code or the kosher food laws. It is amazing what, you'll, what you can find out. Um, but we'll talk more about it in the next lesson. So anyway, I want to thank you for joining me through this lesson. And then if you made it through it, <laughs> congratulate yourself. Pat yourself on the back. Jump up and down. Say, yahoo, whatever. But thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this. And again, uh, check out our website. We have other, other things on the website. And we would love for you to, to uh, join us also in this ministry. There's a link on our webpage that you can do that. But until we see you again, you take care and God bless. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.